of Acts chapter 6, 1 to 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. You know, if you're joining us for the first time, I want to extend a special welcome to you. Uh, we're about we're wrapping up a series that we started about two months ago on vision and the kind of church that we want to be. And uh, for our church in particular, we've uh, we started worshiping at this new location uh, in the mornings at uh, 10:30, and we moved from Murray Hill uh, from a 5 p.m. service. And so it's a good time to kind of reset and reevaluate and rethink why uh, we're here as a community, why we're here, especially in New York. So we've been going. Uh, through vision and uh, what the elders and I uh, picture uh, what God is calling our church to do in particular and what we want to do in the future. And so uh, we've given you this picture of a bridge. We want to be a church that builds bridges, especially in view of the fact that there is so much division in the world. And if you're a Christian, uh, you have the resources to do so because we have the gospel, and the gospel is ultimately about a message of reconciliation through which God reaches out to us and reconciles us to himself through the cross. Now, <clears throat> this uh, this is going to be the last sermon of that series, and in some ways, I think it's going to be one of the more uh, most important sermons in the series because uh, this sermon in particular is going to urge you to begin to act and to begin to do. And... Uh, I don't want you to necessarily leave this place and say, oh, that was uh, that was nice. Well, I don't want you to leave saying, oh, that was boring. But I don't, I don't want you to leave this place saying, oh, that was nice to hear. All right? It made me feel good. It was very inspirational and to kind of leave it there. But I really want you to consider uh, actions that you could possibly take in terms of being a bridge builder. You think about a physical bridge. Physical bridges are not built with our minds. It's not built with our imaginations. It's not even built with our good intentions. But at some point, and that's oftentimes where they start, but at some point what we have to do is we have to start taking out our tools and we have to start uh, putting in effort and work and sacrifice and start building. And so that's kind of what today is about as we conclude this series on building bridges. Uh, I want to urge you to start taking out some of your tools and to start making some concrete actions in terms of uh, what you can do to be a part of building bridges. And to do this, we're going to look at this passage in the book of Acts. This is a book that tells the story of the early church that was very young and that was growing. And growth, is, of course, is exciting. Uh, but as with all organizations, if you think about it, uh, any time an organization or a company grows too fast, it can create problems. I do hope our church grows more, but at the same time, you know, next week if, let's say, 100 people just kind of show up on a Sunday, uh, that's going to create some problems for us because we don't have the infrastructure to be able to to welcome that many people and uh, maybe even to hold that many people in this room. Um, and so uh, anytime there's this rapid growth in any kind of organization, but even, even in the church, it, it can create some issues. And the early church faced some of these issues. 
You see, on the one hand, it must have been very exciting for them to see the Holy Spirit at work and to see people making confessions of faith and to see people getting baptized and disciples being added uh, each and every day. But on the other hand, this growth created some logistical and administrative issues and people ended up getting hurt. So verse 1, it tells us what's going on here. And it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now let me try to paint a picture for you and, and show you what is it going on here. You have this group of people, and they're called the Hellenists here, and they are essentially Greek-speaking Jewish people. And Greek-speaking Jewish people, they had been scattered to other nations, and so they lived in foreign nations. And by living in foreign nations, they adopted certain aspects of that culture. One of the aspects that they adopted was language. And so these were Jewish people who spoke in the Greek language. You have this other group of people. They're called their Hebrews here. And uh, they lived in Palestine, and they grew up learning uh, Aramaic. So two, two groups of Jewish people, uh, the, the Greek-speaking Jewish people, they came back to Palestine. They settled. And, uh, of course... Um, they're Jewish, but they're not the same as the Hebrews in terms of culture. Now, if you are an immigrant or if you are the, the child of an immigrant, you might understand what that might have been like. You know, for me, my parents were Korean immigrants. They immigrated here probably over 30 years ago. And so I was born here. I grew up in the United States, and therefore I am the I am most comfortable uh, in American culture. My most comfortable language is the English language. And if I imagine, if I were to go back to Korea and to live in Korea, I would probably have some issues because I'm not very familiar with the culture in Korea. I'm not very good at speaking Korean. And uh, there might be a little bit of a, of a tension or there might be some kind of miscommunication that takes place there. And that's sort of the dynamic that we see here in this early church with the Hellenists and the Hebrews. <clears throat> One of the issues that came out of here is, it says here, the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Widows. Uh, widows in the ancient world are a little bit different than maybe some of the widows we might be familiar with or know. In the modern wor world, oftentimes women have their own careers and their own jobs and can oftentimes support themselves. Or uh, people will oftentimes take out life insurance. And so if a spouse dies, uh, you can you collect money on life insurance. Or oftentimes people will have things like retirement plans. And so there's some sense of financial security when somebody loses a spouse. But in the ancient world, for women in particular, uh, it was very hard to be a widow. Right? Those kind of things were non-existent. Widows were therefore very susceptible to poverty because their husbands were the primary breadwinners. And if they didn't have an inheritance or if they didn't have any other kinds of means of support, they would often find themselves in poverty. And moreover, even if they did have some kind of material possessions, uh, they were vulnerable to being ripped off, which is why Jesus, uh, he condemns the Pharisees because they devoured widows, which basically means they took advantage of these widows and pilfered their money. And that's why the Bible is so concerned with taking care of widows along with orphans and the poor. And by the way, <clears throat> uh, that wasn't the norm uh, of every culture, to take care of the poor, to take care of orphans, and to take care of widows. Uh, we live in a secular Western culture with uh, secular Western values, and therefore uh, I think people tend to view very positively on things like taking care of the poor and taking care of the marginalized because uh, it elevates uh, certain ideas like human rights. 
But people didn't always uh, espouse things like human rights, and human rights is actually very influenced by a Judeo-Christian worldview. You know, in one of the commentaries that I was reading, one scholar points out that if you just con compare and contrast the way Jewish people looked at the poor and looked at widows with how Romans viewed the poor, uh, it's very different. Jewish people tend to write about the poor um, as people who are pious and very deserving of charity, whereas Romans tend to, to write about the poor as being very dishonest and undeserving of any kind of alms and any kind of charity. Jewish communities often made it their responsibility to take care of uh, their widows and to take care of their poor, whereas Roman society oftentimes viewed widows as being uh, a drain to society and taking up too many resources in society. And the reason for this difference and the reason for this contrast is because the Jewish community they read and they were uh, guided by the Torah, the Old Testament law. And the Christian church in the early times, they carried out this tr Jewish tradition and they realized that they have to continue to take care of the poor and take care of the widows. And so very early on in the Christian church, as it was growing, they made a concerted effort to care for these widows and to distribute uh, food and other material necessities to them. So the issue here in the early church is not so much the fact that they didn't have a desire or even a willingness to help the widows. They gladly gave of their money. They gladly gave of their possessions to help those in need. The problem in the early church was largely an administrative one. It was a logistical issue. Uh, you know, for some of us, when we give money to charity, um, there's very oftentimes very little thought about the details about how that money should actually be distributed uh, but if you've ever had to think about the best way to distribute monetary aid to somebody who needs it, you know it could be a very time-consuming and a very complex matter. Uh, the early church was very willing to share all their possessions, but that wasn't enough because they couldn't properly execute the fair distribution of it. And the reason for this hiccup seems to be because the apostles here are doing most of the work in distributing the food. Interesting. The apostles themselves were the hiccup here. Look at verse 2. It says, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And what's interesting here is how they interpret this problem. Uh, the problem as they see it is not the fact that they had to serve. It's not the fact that they had to serve tables. They're not saying, oh, this work is so menial for us. We should be doing more important things. That is not the issue. But the problem is that it took them away from what God called them to do in terms of preaching the gospel, preaching the word to people. Because you see in the book of Acts, what uh, Luke, the author, is trying to show is the word has power. And as a word along with the spirit comes to people, uh, people respond as they hear it. They respond in faith and they become believers. So if you look at verse 7, as it gives a summary statement, it says, And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. You see, that's meant to tell you, as a result of uh, what the apostles did in terms of choosing these seven men to take over the daily distribution, here was the result. The word of God continued to go forth to the nation, and people were added. Disciples were multiplied in Jerusalem. The word of God bore fruit. And so we see the, the solution that the, uh, the 12 come up with is they decide to appoint seven men to do the work of administrating food to these widows. And I think what's interesting about the seven men that they choose is that these men are described as people who have a good reputation. They're full of the spirit and of wisdom. And you might say, well, if all they're doing is distributing food to widows, why is it so important that they have good reputation? Why is it so important that they're full of the spirit and of wisdom? And uh, it's very important because uh, this task is very important. You see, it's not simply about performing a task. It's not about simply saying, okay, I can do this and give it to widows. But sometimes in order to love people, sometimes in order to serve people, 
you have to remember that they are people. <laughs> you know, it's so easy, I, I think, especially if you're one who serves. Maybe you're somebody who sets up the chairs and cleans up the chairs. Uh, maybe you're someone who prints the bulletins and, and those sort of things. And sometimes it's just so easy to just focus on the task at hand and turn everything into the task and forget that this task is being done uh, in order to serve others. So people who set up the chairs here, that task is being done to serve the people who come to gather and to worship. Uh, and so the reason I think it's important to have this character is to really understand that as we serve, it's not simply about doing a task, but it's really about uh, serving people in love. And I was listening to an NPR program a while back, and they were talking about this idea, this concept, or this task about helping people in need and distributing money and distributing aid to people in need. And they were they were just commenting about how complicated of an issue or complicated of a process it can be because it's not simply, oh, you need, here you go, you can have money, but there's a lot of questions that come up that requires a great deal of wisdom, that requires a great deal of compassion, love, and care. Uh, sometimes the questions that arise are like things like, well, who qualifies for these resources? Uh, who can, uh, what can these resources be used for? Should they be used for things like food, medical bills? Yeah, that's obvious, but what about things like taking their child to the zoo? Isn't that important too? Or what about transportation costs to visit a friend? Uh, how long do we give these resources until it begins to be uh, a hindrance rather than a help? And you, you kind of ask all of these different questions, and it, it takes a lot of wisdom, a lot of care, a lot of love, and a lot of time to really think through how to best help people and these are hard questions which is why I think the seven people that are chosen here they have to be filled with the spirit they have to be men of good reputation moreover uh, whenever you're involved in this kind of work and in this kind of service uh, oftentimes it requires spending a lot of time with people uh, sometimes you have to spend a lot of time with people to know what their needs are to know how to best help them uh, it requires a lot of listening it requires a lot of understanding and discernment requires things that that things be done with integrity and that no favoritism is being shown and that is what these seven men who by the way all have Greek names uh, were appointed to do and in taking over this task what it did was it ultimately served the ministry of the gospel because it freed up the apostles to go and to devote their attention to the ministry of prayer and word so that disciples could be multiplied and added. Now there's a Greek word here that I want to draw your attention to uh, which I hope is going to connect practically into uh, some of our plans as a church for the future. And uh, the word is this. Uh, you see that word translated distribution in verse 1. In Greek that word is diakonia. The word of for serving tables in verse 2, that word is diakoneo. You hear the word deacon uh, in those Greek words. Now, it's generally thought that this passage is the beginning of what would eventually become the office of deacon in the church. What does deacon mean? Uh, in Greek, deacon is it's not uh, always pertaining to a specific office, but deacon essentially basically just means servant. Uh, the verb form just basically means to serve. And so what we see in this passage is not necessarily this official institutional formation of the office of deacon, uh, but what we see here is people who are set apart and commissioned and uh, commissioned for a particular task to serve a particular people, in this case to serve widows. With that said, it's probably the origins of it though. It's probably where they began to think about it. Now in our church, we have had elders for a little less than two years now. And uh, for us uh, elders, uh, I think there's been a little bit of a learning curve for us in terms of like 
really understanding what uh, the best way that we can serve the church and how we can best serve people here. And I think one of the things that we realized uh, over these like last two years or so is that uh, we've been spending and devoting a lot of our time to doing uh, administrative tasks. And there is nothing wrong with that, of course, but we're starting to feel a little bit uh, unfaithful to what we're supposed to be doing, which is uh, shepherding the, co the congregation, caring for the souls of people. And we really want to get back to that, and we really want to focus on things like praying. You know, uh, early on, we, we tried to do this. We meet every two weeks on Monday evenings, and uh, we would try uh, for one of those meetings just to devote it uh, entirely to prayer and to pray for the congregation. But, you know, what happened is, like, our to-do list just kept getting longer and longer and longer, and it just kind of got harder to, to do those kind of things. And so, uh, you know, what we want to do and what's really important for us in terms of how we, we serve the church and the congregation is uh, we want to... Right? We want to devote ourselves to the ministry of prayer. We want to focus on the care of your souls. We want to see how you're doing in your spiritual walk. We want to focus on things like discipleship and, and teaching you and raising you up and equipping you to do the works of ministry. And uh, <clears throat> I, you, I don't know if you know this. Most of you probably don't, but uh, the elders here, Matt, Peter, and Fred, uh, they, they, do, they do a lot, right? They do a lot. And most of the stuff, you don't see what they do, but they do so much to serve the church, and they, they never complain about it. They never grumble about it because I think they love the church, and I think they uh, see it as a privilege to serve the church, but at least uh, the way I see it from my perspective, uh, their time should really be spent doing uh, the shepherding for the church. And so we talked. Logistically, we talked. And uh, we said, if things continue to go the way that they are, and if we're just kind of talking about the administrative and logistical stuff, things that need to be done, uh, the best way to set up the chairs, uh, those kind of things, uh, you know, we're not going to be a healthy church. Uh, we're just not. And so we thought, what should we be doing? Uh, how can we best serve the church? What, what is our role and what is our job? What is our calling as elders? How can we encourage, equip, and empower people to passionately use the gifts that God has given them to serve people? And that's what brings us to this passage here. What we want to do is we want to start a diaconate, a diaconate committee, which is basically going to be a group of people who want to serve and who are willing to serve. And this diaconate committee is uh, its going to be open to anybody, right? So any of you who wants to be part of it, as long as you want to serve and have a heart to serve and want to get more involved in serving the church, uh, you are welcome to join. Uh, and I think in a way it's going to get, things will be a little bit more organized and a little bit executed better so that we can serve people, so that we can serve visitors better, so that we can connect newcomers better and things like that. Um, <clears throat> But let me also say this, right? Being part of this diaconate committee uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a deacon. Doesn't necessarily mean that you will be a deacon. But this is time that we want to use to to train, to pray, to talk about some of the uh, logistical things of the church in terms of how can we better run things as a church, how can we better serve people through our execution. Uh, and what we've been doing as elders, we've, we we started to pray, right? We started to pray, God, give people a heart to want to serve in this way, to be willing to take on a greater burden of responsibility in serving the church. And uh, we want to eventually get more uh, organized and start delegating certain things and responsibility that to others because, uh, to be frank, most of you are probably better suited to do it than uh, the four of us. 
And so we're hoping that some deacons uh, will, of course, emerge. And hopefully within the next year, we will actually ordain some deacons out of this group. But simply, we're just forming this group uh, for anybody who wants to serve and anybody who feels called to get more involved and take on a greater responsibility in serving uh, the church. Now, let me also say this. <clears throat> uh, many of you, many, many of you are already serving, and many of you are already doing multiple things. And I do hope uh, you will consider joining this diaconate and taking this next step to uh, maybe becoming a servant leader. Uh, ultimately, I hope this is what will make our community better at actually physically, not physically, but actually building the bridges that we're uh, trying to build uh, to be a community that can really communicate and serve people with friendship and hospitality and warmth. Uh, I hope we can start uh, organizing more things and more events and more fellowships and more outreaches and give more people an opportunity to be a part of this community and to grow. And uh, for the elders and I, I hope we can uh, focus more on, you know, what is it that we need to teach? What is it that we need to, how can we best equip uh, the church? Uh, what are some of those things? And we can focus on uh, those, those things uh, so that we can all grow uh, spiritually and ultimately in service of the gospel mission. Uh, finally, let me let me also say this as a way of encouragement. I, I know today's message is a little bit different because it's very um, church-specific and uh, very administrative, but uh, we felt it was important to to do this. But uh, here's the uh, the preaching part, right? Here's the sermon part. <laughs> I want to end with an encouragement because for some of us, uh, I mean, let's be honest, we're not we don't always want to serve. Uh, it's not always our heart's desire. Some of us maybe have zero interest in serving at all. And, you know, that's okay, right? You're, you're still uh, welcome in this community. It doesn't necessarily make you a better or a worse person. Um, we don't want to build a culture where uh, you serve out of guilt or you serve because you're coerced into serving. We want to build a culture because you really do see serving as a privilege and it's something that you want to do. But if that is you, uh, I want you to consider this. Generally speaking, from the perspective of the world, um, some types of service, for example, serving tables, it might not seem a like a very glorious thing to do. Uh, it might feel like something that is just very unimportant and menial. Some of us may frankly think we're better than that, and our time can be is more valuable than that, and we should be doing more important things. But let me encourage you by saying this. Uh, you know, the gospel shows us a very different vision of what is truly glorious and what is truly important. Now, I said the word uh, diaconeo means simply to serve, and it's used very frequently in the New Testament, but it's also used to describe Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Mark 10.45, Jesus says this, The Son of Man came not to be served, diaconeo, but to serve, diaconeo, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Romans 15, 8-9, Paul says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant. He became a, a deacon in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. When we think about who Jesus is, he is, of course, king, but he is a king of a very different nature, of a very different order, because he came as a servant. He came as a servant. In John 13, maybe one of the uh, most impactful pictures 
of the fact that Jesus came as a servant. Jesus, he is spending his final night with his disciples, and he does something that nobody would have ever expected him to do. He gets down on his hands and his knees. He ties a towel around his waist, pours water into this basin, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. That's something slaves and servants do. That's not something teachers do. That's not something uh, kings do. You know, some people, like I think the Pope did it. Uh, if, you, if you've been in the church, maybe you've seen some people do it. Uh, but let's imagine Jesus never did that. Let's imagine that's never been in the Bible. Just practically speaking, who of us is going to want to wash somebody's feet, right? Even now. I mean, we have sneakers on. We wear socks. Our feet are relatively clean. I don't want to wash any of your feet. <laughs> and you probably don't want to wash mine. It's just such a humiliating, humbling thing to do, right? And here, Jesus does it. And he does it for his disciples. And their feet are probably super dirty because they're probably wearing sandals. Now, we are, we are pretty much the same on a horizontal level, right? In terms of status, in terms of dignity. Jesus is not the same as his disciples. And Jesus is not the same as us. There, there is a world of difference between who Jesus is and who we are. And yet he comes and he is the one to demonstrate what it means to be a servant. And he gets on his hands and knees and he washes feet. You know, if the Bible is true, and if Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the imprint of his nature, there is no reason why he should be washing his disciples' feet like a servant. But he does. Why? You know, I think the answer is actually hard to really understand. But at the same time, I think the answer is pretty simple in terms of the answer is love. It's love. You think about love. What makes love unique is it's not something that can be coerced. It's not something that can be taken. Love is the one of the few things that has to be voluntarily and freely given. You can force somebody to hang out with you, but you can't force somebody to love you. You can even force somebody to marry you, uh, maybe like back in the day, like political marriages, but you can't force somebody to love you. Love is one of those things that has to be voluntarily and freely given. And you look at why did Jesus wash his disciples' feet? Did he have to do that? Did he really have to do that? Couldn't they wash their own feet? Sure, they could have. Why did Jesus do that? I think that's a point. He didn't have to do that. But it was one of the most powerful ways that he expressed his servant-like love for them. Here's what it ultimately does, though. Ultimately, it points out to how he would show his love for all of us in the greatest act of service and in the greatest act of humiliation as he goes and he dies upon a cross for us. You see, when he dies upon the cross, he's treated lower than somebody who washes feet. He's treated with shame. He's treated like a criminal. People are mocking him. People are spitting on him. He's hanging there naked before all people for all the world to see. Why does he do that? Love. He didn't have to do that, right? 
He didn't have to take our sin upon himself. He didn't have to serve us in such a way. But he did it. He wasn't coerced. He did it obediently and voluntarily that we might receive the thing that we ought to cherish and treasure the most. The only thing that could freely be given by him, his love. Now what's interesting in the Gospel of John is after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he then tells his his disciples, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And even Jesus himself doesn't leave it as like, hey, let me wash your feet. All right, point made. But even Jesus says, look, if you really understand what I'm doing here, if you really understand what it means to be a servant, if you really understand the gospel, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Friends, if, if we really claim to be believers, and if we really claim to believe in this gospel, if we claim to believe in this story, if we claim to believe that Jesus, the very glorious radiance of God, got on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet, if we really believe that he voluntarily went to the cross and died upon the cross so that we might be given his love, there is no other way to respond than to say, may I be a servant too. <laughs> right? May I be a servant too. You see, the modern story says, serve yourself first and serve others with what you have left over. And I think if we're honest, that's how we we approach serving as well, right? We say, let me get what I need to get done for myself first, and if I have any spare time, then I'll give what's left over. The gospel isn't like that, and Jesus doesn't do that. The gospel story says, serve others first with all that you have, with all that you are, and leave no leftover for yourself. Because that, that is exactly what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. We're planning to uh, meet as this diaconate committee starting in June. We're still working out some of the details. But if you want to do it, talk to me or talk to one of the elders and say, you know, I want to be a part of this. If you have concerns about time, about work schedule, about anything of that nature, um, don't sweat too much about it. Uh, this is not going to be some, right, it'll be flexible. Uh, I think the most important thing is uh, you, you just want to serve. If you have that desire, if you have that willingness, be a part of this group and this committee. And I think it will be a very uh, a very powerful time as we spend together in prayer, as we spend together thinking about how do we love people better? What can we do to show, express welcome and hospitality better? How can we connect people better? How can we reach out to New York City better? I think those are going to be some of the most exciting conversations to have. And uh, what it requires is not super amount of giftedness. Uh, it just requires a desire to serve. Desire to serve. Serving tables, doing menial tasks out of love for others, uh, contrary to what we might think, is actually going to be the best use of our time according to God's paradigm. And so friends, as we just conclude the series in general, uh, let's build some bridges. Uh, let's serve people in New York the best that we can. And today, let's make some concrete steps towards that end. 
For God calls us to be uh, servants, to be deacons, not in the office sense, but in the serving sense. But he doesn't do it, he doesn't call us uh, out of a vacuum, but he served us first, and he gave us a great example of what it means to serve. Let's pray together.